Okay, last week we started a new series, and it was called, or it is called The 8%, and it is all about how do we uh, kind of plan out and how do we focus in on some things this next year, and it came from this idea of um, a survey that only 8% of people actually follow through and uh, do their New Year's resolution, and so whether you're a person who does New Year's resolutions or not, um, I think we probably all fall into that category where most of our dreams, our visions, who we want to become, um, we don't make it there. Probably around 8% of us, we actually arrive. And so we're kind of looking at how do we get there? But even more important than that, um, we're looking at what exactly should we be striving for? What should be the vision? What should be the goal? Because there's a lot of things that we could be doing, but there are very few things that we should be doing. And so I, uh, I went to the database of knowledge and opinions this week, uh, Twitter, in order to find what some people's resolutions were for the coming year. Let me share a couple of them that I found uh, First one was, um, I'm happy that this year I kept my resolution of not being passive-aggressive as opposed to somebody that I know. (laughs) All right. Uh, My New Year's resolution is to be more assertive, if that's okay with you guys. (laughs) My New Year's resolution is to get really into essential oils and then make sure I bring up the fact that I'm really into essential oils in every conversation that I have. You know who you are. We can all smell you. Okay. (laughs) My New Year's resolution is to help all my friends gain 10 pounds so I look skinnier. (laughs) This one's not really a resolution. It's just a comment. I love when they drop the ball in Times Square. It's a nice reminder of what I did all year. (laughs) Drop drop the ball. Okay. Uh, My wife still hasn't told me what my New Year's resolutions are. My New Year's resolution is to spend less time with people and more time on my phone. I'm doing well, pretty, uh, doing well so far. And then this one was actually my favorite. My New Year's resolution is to love myself like Kanye loves himself and believe in myself like Kanye believes in himself. <laughs> so if you haven't uh, had any resolutions, welcome to uh, steal a couple of those. So. Anyway, last week we talked about what should we be doing? What should we be focusing on? All the things we could do, what should we do? What are the things that are going to bring change, life impact, fulfillment? And so um, we started with the book of Nehemiah. And if you were not here or you need a little refresher, the book of Nehemiah takes place when Israel is in uh, exile. And so kind of the big picture is Israel is God's chosen people. He raises up this nation and he says, I am going to have a special relationship with you. And through that relationship, you are going to be blessed and you are going to bless the entire world. You are going to be the ones who tell the world about me. And so there's this special relationship between Israel and, uh, and God, but with this relationship comes rules. He says, these are the things that you need to do in order to continue to receive my blessings. And so if they do these things, things go well. If not, things go poorly. And we hear throughout the Old Testament that they continue to turn away from God. They're going to do their own thing. They're going to follow their own rules. And God continues to warn them and says, hey, listen up. I'm going to, I'm going to take my hand of blessing away from you unless you get back on track. Well, they decide that they're going to go their own way, do their own thing. And so eventually, God takes his hand away from Israel, and he allows uh, some of the surrounding nations to come in and to conquer them. And so they are marched off into exile, into captivity for 70 years. 
And it's there that we find, um, after the 70 years of exile, the book of Nehemiah. And what's happening is the king has decided to let people go home. It's a new king, new nation actually has taken over. And so he says, you guys, if you were in captivity, you're free to go home. And so some people start to head back to um, the, 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 the place in which they find their, uh, their heritage, their origins. And the others, they, begin to, they, they decide to stay. And so we see this person, Nehemiah, and he is one of the uh, Jews who have been in exile, but he decides to stay because he is the cupbearer to the king. And this is a really prestigious position. He has lots of authority. He has access to the most powerful man uh, on earth at the time, and he begins to get what we call a burden. What happens is he hears about Jerusalem, and he hears that Jerusalem is still destroyed, that the gates are burned, that the walls have been broken down, that the the temple, Solomon's temple, where God's presence was supposed to have dwelt, it was still destroyed, and it broke his heart. We find out that um, he was upset, not just because of um, this is, a, this is the, the city where his family comes from, but this is supposed to be the city and the people in which God blesses the entire world through. And to see it broken down, to see it still in a mess was not just... Uh, um, It wasn't just upsetting, it was devastating because this was supposed to be the way that God brings man and creator back together. And so we started to look at this question. And the question to help us discern what we could do and what we should do is this, is what breaks your heart or what moves you? And so what breaks your heart? You may look at the world, you may look at your community, you look at your family, your neighborhood, and you you just see the way that things are and it breaks your heart. You wish it were not that way. It's a burden that you carry on. Every time you're reminded of whatever this thing or this this problem is, it's a burden. Or maybe it's something that you just are inspired by. When you see that the way things are and you think about how they could be different, how the world could be different, how your family could be different, how your workplace could be different, you're moved, you're stirred. And so we begin with the question, what moves you? What breaks your heart? And so as as we learned Uh, last week. It could be a ton of different things. So from Nehemiah, we find that this this city that's been destroyed is what breaks his heart. And by the way, uh, let me fast forward a little bit. You're going to find out that he begins this construction project on the city of Jerusalem, and it only takes 30 days from start to finish. And so it's not like the thing that he's called to necessarily for the rest of his life. It could just be, this is the next month. This is the next season of my life. This isn't necessarily the thing that I'm dedicating my life to. It could be But it might just be, you know, this next season, I really feel like I am supposed to be doing this. And so it could be anything from seeing that family that your kids go to school with or they're on the same sports team. And every time you see them and you interact, you just, your heart breaks for them because you know they're good people and yet they don't know Jesus. And you just so desire for them to be in that relationship. Or maybe it's something that when you arrive on this campus and you walk around and you see some things and you go, oh, What if we could change this? What if we could add this? What if this could be different here? Or maybe it's something in your past. When you think about the beginning of your marriage or your career or or, or your faith journey, you wish that there was someone who would have walked alongside you. You could have avoided so many mistakes if you just had maybe a mentor. Or maybe you had that mentor and, and you are so thankful for them and so you just want to do that for somebody else. It could be something or someone that God is calling you to. So, question I want to address today is, uh, what do we do when, think, when we think God is calling us to that someone or to that something? And so as soon as 
Nehemiah feels this stir in his heart that God might be calling him to do something, here's what happens. So we'll go into uh, verses uh, 1-4. It says this, When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant is praying before your before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. And so Nehemiah does three things before he jumps in and decides to pursue what he believes God is calling him to do. The first thing he does is he mourns. And if you look throughout the whole prayer, this mourning is over his own sin, over the the rebellion that his family and that his people have done. And then he begins to fast and pray. And if you don't know what fasting is, initially you think, okay, it's just like you don't eat for some reason. But really the purpose of fasting is you abstain from something in order to focus in on a greater thing, oftentimes God and, and what he's calling you to do. And so he fasts, and then he begins praying, and it says he prays day and night, day and night. And this is, of course, going to be a a part of each step of the process, prayer, but he begins here. He begins with prayer. And I think that it's really important that he begins with prayer because this intense time of seeking God is going to be one of the things that helps us be able to differentiate between what we could do and what we should do. Right, because I hear about a thousand needs a day, and I'm oftentimes like, "Oh, I wish this could be different, and I could be, and I could be a part of this." And there's a thousand different directions that I could go. I like shiny things; I chase after them. By lunch, I could be doing a new thing all day long. And yet, there are very few things that we should do. And so, part of the process of stopping and having an intense time of seeking God when we believe He's calling us to do something is we can ask God, God, is this you or is this me? Is this another good thing or is this a God thing? What exactly do you want me to do? Do I need to be a part of this process? And so by continuing to seek God, what happens in this time is not that we become less passionate, but we become more passionate. It almost becomes like something that that we're we're gonna burst inside unless we go and we pursue this thing. And so through this continual seeking of God, he is going to, I think, bring confirmation that this is what you are supposed to do. So I had a weird thing this week. Um, I'm not necessarily like the most spiritual person, and if you're a seacoaster, you kind of know this, and it's not really what you want from your pastor, but deal with it. And so uh, I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm skeptical about a lot of spiritual things. And so uh, there are very few times when I go, God told me to do this. Very few. I think I had one this week. Okay, so here's what happened. Is uh, Tuesday morning, I got in here kind of early because I knew I was going to be speaking, so I wanted to get kind of a jump start on the week and, and, and the sermon. And as I was studying and I was praying and I was thinking, I wrote down this phrase, and the phrase comes from a Bible verse, but it's kind of an obscure verse. I haven't taught on it before. I wasn't reading it. I, in fact, I had to look it up to find out where it even was, but I just wrote it down. And I thought, okay, God, are you trying to tell me something through this? And then about 30 minutes later, we go to our staff devotionals. We have a devotional every morning before we start our workday. And my dad was leading. And so he gets up and he starts to read this passage. Again, it's kind of obscure. And it's the very same passage that I had just written down 30 minutes before that. And I heard him start to read it. And I was like, you know, just this is weird, dude. I don't even know about this. And then yesterday, I, I clicked on a sermon uh, from a pastor I don't normally listen to, and it was, it was just a random sermon, and it was the same verse again. And I just went, 
All right, God, one more. I just need one more, okay? Three is great. If I could have four, I'll be, you know what, confirmation. But I think by this, this, uh, this time of prayer and seeking God and being intentional about it, oftentimes we're going to see confirmation. It may not be like that. It may be something totally different, but it seems like God is continuing to push you in this direction. And so here's what uh, Nehemiah does next. This is the end of his prayer. Verse 11, it says, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. And so what he does is he asks for two things. He knows God is calling him to do this, and before he even begins to act, he says, Lord, I need you to do two things. I need you to give me opportunity and favor. And this request for opportunity, I think, is the difference between someone who dreams and someone who has a vision, a dreamer and a visionary. Because a dreamer says, maybe if you're a parent, a dreamer says, Lord, fix my kids, right? Just make them better, at least different, you know, just help me. But a visionary says, Lord, help me be a part of shaping my kid's life. Help me be able to, to influence them, open up opportunities for me to invest in them, for me to talk about things, spiritual things, things that matter. See, Nehemiah doesn't just say, Lord, I want you to fix this problem in Jerusalem. He says, give me an opportunity to be a part of the solution. Open up doors of opportunity. Other thing he prays for is favor. Nehemiah is about to make a huge request to the king, and the king is not a generous man. He's not a compassionate man. In fact, um, he is asking to go and rebuild a city in which he oversees, has conquered, and could potentially be an issue in the future. And so he is making a huge ask, and he knows that he is going to need God to go with him to prepare the king's heart. Before I get up and I speak, every time before I speak, I do the same prayer. It is, Lord, please show up and use me, because if you don't, this is going to go really bad. God, you're going to have to speak. You're going to have to open hearts because if it's dependent upon me, we're all in trouble. And so I need you to be there. And that's exactly what Nehemiah is saying. And so after all of this, God calls him. He has confirmation. He knows this is what he is supposed to do. He's going to make this, this huge leap of faith. And you know what happens next in the story? It's crazy. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing happens. He just sits there and he waits. Now, you may miss this part of the story if you were just reading through it, but it's in the details, all right? So check this out. Um, the, the next chapter, chapter two, begins like this. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, and so you usually, we skip over this part. We go, I don't know what that means. I don't care, but check this out. The beginning of chapter one starts to look like this. In the month of Kislev, all right? So what does this mean? Well, there's clearly a passage of time that takes place, six months actually. And so he's got a, a period of six months in which God calls him to do this thing. He has this burden, this passion, and then nothing takes place for six months. Why? Why would he do this? Why would God just leave him hanging like that? Well, if you look at the scriptures, there's a pattern, and some people refer to it as a desert experience. And it's oftentimes when, when God calls somebody to do something significant— he will make them wait because he's preparing them. 
And so if you go to some of the major biblical characters, people like Moses, we find out that Moses waited for 40 years. He was in the desert as a shepherd before he got to march his people out of Egypt, and then another 40 years before they got to enter into the promised land. You look at people like Joseph, he spent two years sitting in prison. Jesus, 40 days of, uh, before he started his ministry, for 40 days he, 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 uh, he fasted in the wilderness. Paul spent three years in the desert before he began his ministry, and then Nehemiah is spending six months in the wrong city, in the wrong job, just waiting for God to show up. I think this is where a lot of us find ourselves, is God calls us to do something or, or to be a part of someone's life. And then we have this burden, this passion, and then nothing happens. We just wait. It's not that we're lazy. It's not that we've lost passion or we've lost. In fact, it's been building this whole time. And yet we know that God has not opened that door yet. We have young kids and we've got to focus on them or, or the, the opportunities, the resources aren't there. The people haven't come along yet. And it's very clear. God is telling us just pause, just wait. And it's in this season of waiting that, well, I know for myself, I hate it. We live in an instant everything, right? Instant communication, instant food, instant entertainment. Everything is instant. And then when God says, now I need you to wait, I just about lose my mind. See, when we're waiting, I'm tempted to give up or to settle for something lesser. So uh, one of my traditions that I do after I preach a whole weekend is I reward myself with in and out It's the Lord's way. And uh, a few weeks ago, we went to in and out and I don't know what it was about this Sunday, but everyone decided also to reward themselves with in and out And so the line in the parking lot was insane. I've never seen it this long. And I'm impatient. I don't want to wait. in and out that is not happening today. And so I decided we're going to go somewhere else. Where's the other place that we go to? I repent, McDonald's, okay? We said, let's go to McDonald's. So we go down the street, we head to McDonald's, and luckily they serve breakfast all day, so okay, I can deal with that. And so I, of course, order the McGriddle sausage, egg, and cheese. It's not in and out, but it'll do. And so we get our order, we start to drive, I open it up, I take a bite, and I look at it, and I realize, well, I have the sausage, I have the, like, griddle part, there's no egg or cheese in this thing. I didn't even know that was an option. And so we circle back around, and Amy runs in, and she goes, hey, uh, I, you know, you gave us the wrong order. And this is the best part. They go, well, do you have your receipt? So you think I made this at home. I warmed it up. I found a wrapper, wrapped it, and brought it in so that I could scam you out of 99 cents? Is that what's happening right now? She was not pleased. And so they give us a, a new order. She walks out. She's like, oh my goodness. And I was like, all right, let's go. Let's get home. It's been a long day. Start driving, take another bite. And I go, okay, cool. There's the egg and the cheese. They took the sausage out. <laughs> my goodness. And so Amy's done. She's like, forget it. We're going home. I go, oh no, we're not going home. <laughs> the, the, we are going, it's a principle of the matter. We are going back to get that order right now. Get there the third time, the cash register lady, which is like, what? <laughs> it's just like, she starts yelling at people in the back. I don't know, probably got fired during their life, but whatever, I got my meal. Um, and, and it's because I hate waiting and you hate waiting that we are just so easily give up or we will settle for less. But here's something that I want you to remember is waiting time is not wasted time. Waiting time is not wasted time. If you think about it like this is, 
A woman who is expecting a child is pregnant. Nine months of waiting is not wasted time. That is valuable time. That is crucial for the child and for the parents. It's crucial for the child because, of course, this child needs to develop, needs to mature over this nine-month period. But it's also really important for the parents, especially first-time parents, because they have a lot to get together before that baby arrives. We had some friends that came over this week who uh, are expecting their first child, and um, I invited them over to take everything that we have that's newborn just so that my wife will not have another child. I'm like, here, take it, load it up. <laughs> you know, we don't need it. Trust me, please, Lord, we don't need it. You know, so... And it's funny just hearing them as they're preparing for this baby. It's like, oh my goodness, we need car seats and we need cribs and we got to get the house ready and our schedule's got to change and we need childcare. And, and their whole life is about to be turned upside down. And so that nine months is not just sitting around doing nothing. It is planning and preparing for this baby to arrive. I think the same is true with these visions and dreams and goals that God puts on our heart is it is not a time of sitting around and waiting. It is it is valuable time, because during this time, we can see our character and our faith and our skill set begin to develop, is God has to work in you before he can work through you. And so there may be some things that God needs to work in you before he's going to use you, and so it might be things like your character. He's got to work in you, and he's got to teach you, okay, here's what it looks like to, to be a person of faith. Here's what it looks like to trust me. Here's what it looks like to be loyal, even when it doesn't make sense. Here's what it looks like to Become a person of influence. Oftentimes there's skills that you need to develop. There's a clarity of your vision in which you think it's supposed to look like this, but as you pursue God and you are waiting for him to open up the door, he is clarifying what exactly he is calling you to do. And of course, he's building that conviction within you where you, every single day, you get up and you seek God. That conviction to pursue his dream continues to burn inside of you. God also prepares the, the people and the circumstances if you look at the story of Nehemiah, what's happening in the background is he's not only preparing Nehemiah, but he's also preparing Jerusalem. Because right before this, God has sent two other leaders to Jerusalem to begin to prepare the hearts of the people there. And of course, he's working in the king in order to prepare his heart when Nehemiah makes this big request. And so Nehemiah has a choice. Will he plan and prepare? And will he get ready for God to show up? Or will he just sit around and kind of see what happens? See, the reason why parents prepare and plan when they're expecting or when the, the child's right, because they are expecting, that's why we say we're, that we're expecting our first child, because we're pretty sure we know what's going to happen at the end of this deal. There's going to be a baby. Well, the same thing is true with us who are believers is when we're pre preparing and planning, it's an act of faith because we're expecting God to show up. And so Nehemiah believes that God is going to, expects that God is going to show up, and so he needs to prepare and plan for when he does so he can be ready. And so uh, this next verse, I'll kind of summarize it because I'm going to run out of time. What happens is he goes in front of the king. He's bringing the wine one day. The king can tell that he's upset about something. And so then he makes this ask. He, he says, Nehemiah, I can tell that there's something not right in your life. I can tell that your, your heart hurts. What's the deal? And if we go to the verse four, we'll just go to the very end of it. Verse four, the king said to me, what is it that you want? Then I pray to the God of heaven. And so he can tell that there's something not right with Nehemiah. And he says, what is it that you want? Now, my wife, being the super spiritual person she is, I uh, did this last night. And she said, it kind of reminds me of the notebook when it's like, what do you want? What do you want? You know that part? There's like a meme going, all right. Fine. You guys aren't as hip as me, I guess. Um, 
But this is the moment of truth for Nehemiah. He's been waiting. He's been planning. He's been preparing. He is expecting for God to open the door. And so he is ready when God opens that door. That question, what do you want? Well, of course, he's ready and he's ready to answer that question. So what he does is he lays out his plan. Step one, two, three, four. He says, here's the supplies that I need. Here's the papers that I need for travel. Here's the authority that I need from you. Here's the research. Here's the time off. And he just goes through and you know that he has practiced this speech a thousand times in the last six months because he was expecting God to open this door. I kind of wonder what it would look like for us to be expecting for God to show up and us being prepared and planning for when he does. When our child opens up and says, hey, I've been meaning to ask you, why do you do this? When that neighbor, when that friend says, I know that church and God is kind of important, what's the deal with that? When that door opens up, will you be ready to answer? And so here's how this, uh, this section of the story ends. It says this, it says, and because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my request. I noticed a couple of things. What he does here is um, the king grants his request, and I think that, one, this is because God's hand was on him, and we'll talk about that, but the other is I think it's because Nehemiah was a trustworthy person. He was loyal to the king, and the king, remember, was not a good guy, but God was able to bless Nehemiah because of his obedience to the authorities that were in his life. And when God places these authorities in our life, it's like we are obeying him as we obey them. And so because he was loyal, because he was a man of character, God was able to grant his request. And then here's the thing that Nehemiah does, and I don't want to miss this, is, and we'll see this every step of the way, every time Nehemiah sees a little bit of success, he just straight points it back to God and goes, God, thank you. I know that it wasn't me who did this. I know I'm not deserving of this. I know I'm not entitled to any of this. And so every time he sees a little bit of success, he turns it right back to God because here's the fact. There is nothing that can distort our perspective worse than just having a little bit of success. And so he continues to point it back to God. God, thank you for your faithfulness. And so let me end with um, just a word of encouragement for some of us who are in this season of waiting, who... Um, we find ourselves where we, we, we live in this tension between the dreaming and the coming true, that yes, we know what God has called us to do or, or who he has called us to or what it is we're supposed to become. And, and my affirmation, my encouragement is that if you say yes to God and you simply take the next step, and that next step could be, okay, I signed up. I dedicated it to prayer, I did my research, I initiated the conversation, whatever the next step is, if you simply take the next step, or maybe it's I don't know what the next step is and I'm faithful by just doing the last thing that God called me to do. The good news is even if you don't see any progress yet, in God's sight you are still a success. That every time you say yes to him and you step out in faith, that you are successful in his eyes. Because when we see things from God's perspective, he doesn't see us as successful the day that we realize our dreams. He sees it every step of the way that we say yes to him. Think about it. When was Jesus successful? If you look at his ministry, was it when he um, performed miracles? Maybe it was when he died on the cross. Well, what about when he rose from the It's probably when he rose from the That's when he was successful. If you look at Jesus' ministry, the moment he was successful was before any of this started. It was when he said yes to the Father's call on his life. He was baptized, and then, the, and then uh, the Father says, this is my son whom I'm well pleased. He is a success. Why? Because he said yes. 
He hadn't even done anything yet. And so for those of us who are frustrated and we find ourselves in this waiting time, before we realize any of our dreams and it feels like they're so far off and it may never happen, realize that success in God's eyes is not dependent upon the fruitfulness, but the faithfulness. And so I would encourage you to continue to take that next step, whatever it might be, to continue to trust that God is going to work out whatever he has called you to do, and that each step along the way, when you say yes, God thinks you're a success. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for, thank you for the scriptures. Uh, the more that I learn about um, your word and the more that I can see how practical it is, um, the more insight that I get, the more it excites me. And Lord God, when we think about things as simple as a construction project, building some walls, and you see that that has transformed an entire group of people, and in fact, we see it lead up to something pretty miraculous, it encourages us in our, our daily activities and the things that may seem mundane that you're calling us to, Lord God, is that we get to be a part of whatever you're doing, and so the win is always when we say yes to whatever you're calling us to do. And so, Lord God, my prayer for this church is that you would continue to give us burdens, continue to give us a vision for the future, and that we would be people who step out in faith, that we prepare, we expect for you to show up, and as an act of faith, we step out and we say yes. And so, Lord God, we thank you. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.